0: Hello, and welcome back to the Return on Character podcast with Dan Cooper, me, uh, CEO and founder of Rock Investments, an investment strategy that allocates capital on the basis of the character of public company CEOs. We have a podcast today because we're getting a chance to talk to, um, I don't even know how to describe this, this gentleman, uh, listeners. This I'm going to read you his bio, and then we're going to go into a discussion. Uh, but, I mean, I'm going to read this bio purely because it's so fun. His name is is Shane Snow. Uh, he is an award-winning entrepreneur, explorer, and journalist. His writing has appeared in GQ, Fast Company, Wired, and The New Yorker. And he is a world-renowned keynote speaker on innovation and human behavior. Shane has helped expose gun trafficking, government corruption, climbed up abandoned buildings around the world, eaten only ice cream for weeks in the name of science, taught millions of people to work better through original research and best-selling book, uh, his best-selling book on human behavior, Dream Teams, Smart Cuts, and the Storytelling Eds. Shane has performed comedy on Broadway, produced award-winning films, founded various successful companies, at the intersection of media technology, including business skill training companies, uh, Snow Academy. He has his own academy, the content marketing platform Contonly, uh, Contently, and the film technology company Showrunner. Please welcome Shane Snow. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Dan. Uh, that's a uh, thanks for for the flattering <laughs> intro. Um, I. Uh... Yeah, the, it it makes it sound like I've lived uh, like for a hundred years. And I will say that I am older than I look, which uh, you know, haven't haven't done all of this in my 20s uh by any stretch. Uh but no, it's a pleasure to be here. And also, where do I get one of those hats? I I can I arrange want the for do that. good hat. The okay. do good
0: hat. Isn't it awesome? I love it. Um yeah, no, I mean it's so cool to to talk to someone like yourself because I would put you in the new category of the most interesting man of the world. Uh, I I've known a lot of interesting folks. I've I've done a lot of interesting things myself. But your list is pretty unique, and uh, and I and there's so many different directions Shane we could go in this discussion. But for context, let's first start. Let's go back to how Shane became Shane when it, it and and this bio kind of came to be, Where, where'd you grow up? What's your story? How'd you get to to kind of your, your first break in life and and whatever else that might be worth mentioning?
1: Okay. Um, well, thank you for, yeah, for being interested. I, I do think I have a sort of eclectic journey, which is actually part of my working theory of, uh, you know, why I've been able to do what I've been able to do so far and why I've had a lot of sort of disasters along the way too. But uh, I, I grew up in Idaho in uh, kind of outside of a small town. I grew up in Baudelau County, for anyone who happens to know where that is. And uh, my dad was an auto mechanic, and uh, he flipped houses, and then eventually he got a job at a nuclear test site out in the middle of the desert, where he's now an engineer, actually just retired. But so I grew up with this dad who was a, a Mr. Fix-It, basically. And, uh, and my brothers and I, we were his apprentices and assistants. And we hated every second of, you know, fixing cars and helping, you know, sheetrock houses until we got to a certain point when we realized that it was really cool to understand how the world worked. And then it wasn't just work, it was learning. And you know, the other side, the other thing I give credit to in sort of forming the way that I, I see and approach the world is my mom, uh, is very much an educator. She uh, taught, uh, American sign language and, uh, and also was very good at tricking us into reading and learning for fun. So getting sent to your room was like a reward because that's where all the books were. And uh and so I uh you know I I kind of grew up with this idea that learning was fun and I wanted to take things apart and understand how they worked and you know fixing cars with my dad got more fun when my brother and I used that to build go-karts for ourselves, you know that kind of thing. So that's sort of the the foundation of a, a sort of entrepreneurial kick. And um, you know, in high school, the the internet happened um for us. And uh, you know, once we got an internet connection, I started learning how to code and make websites and sort of making money on the internet, which freaked my parents out a lot. Um, so this is those early days of of advertising on online and um, you know, making basically making stuff again, tinkering and and building stuff and uh and then there's a sort of a mild point of contention uh if uh, it comes up in my family there was a point when my parents decided that i needed to learn kind of the value of real hard work and that my internet stuff was too easy too easy of a way to make money you know in those days and by the way this is before the dot-com thing you know took out any of the things i was doing anyway uh but they made me get a job at the gas company uh, basically digging holes and spray painting gas meters. And I was so furious. Yeah. I was so mad. It was character building, like in retrospect and that sort of huge fight with my parents, I think ha- was character building. Um, but you know, I behaved like a teenager about it. I was, you know, it was not nice about it. I hated every second of it. But in that I did learn the value of hard work and some respect for, you know, like, that kind of work, you know, and like working class, uh, putting food on the table, you know, by uh, by digging holes so that people can have you know natural gas in their house and cook their food. I learned that, and I learned to appreciate that. But I also learned that I wanted to be my uh, in charge of my own career from then on. I want to be my own boss, and so I, when I went to college to pay for college, I, I built websites for people. I did more, you know, sold things online, kind of figured out any which way I could avoid being someone else's employee.
0: Or working, uh, even if it was in,
1: digging ditches, right? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> if I was going to dig ditches, I was going to be the one setting the schedule for my ditch digging business. Like that, basically was the got it, the idea. And um, you know, and there's a, a lot of hubris, I think, in that period of your life. Uh, but that that was sort of what I, I was about. And uh, and then when I was in school, I had a roommate who was the editor of a newspaper. And, uh, and he got me a job for the semester at the newspaper. And I realized that I loved, you know, I grew up loving reading. I loved writing even more than I loved sort of this entrepreneurial thing. And I decided I was gonna become a writer. And it's a few steps after that of the twists and turns, but I eventually went to journalism school and became a reporter, writing about business, writing about entrepreneurs, writing about tech for fast company and wired and Mashable and places like that. and then. Uh, in the course of doing that, I got this sort of itch. I was seeing, I was hanging out with you know people who, like the founders of BuzzFeed and Foursquare and Tumblr. During that, you know, I'd moved to New York by then. During that era when Web 2.0 was happening, and I was seeing them build these companies, and you know, we were all the same age, and I was writing about their adventures, and I wanted to go on that adventure too. So I eventually started uh, a company with some friends, and uh, and then really got into business that way. But I had this thing that whole time, you know, sort of fast forward, I've now done a couple of businesses, the training company that you mentioned, Snow Academy. I'm now running a a film tech company, which has been very fun and sort of applying all the things I've learned over the decades. But but I had this thing uh, when I started that first, you know, real company with real employees and started scaling it, that if I... If I had got singularly focused on that, I was going to miss out on opportunities to kind of change the game in what I was working on. And the analogy I use is uh, that if you're, so I got this advice of stay in your lane, take what you're good at stay in that lane. The analogy is if everyone's in the same lane, we're all encountering the same experiences. We're working within the same sort of body of knowledge as everyone in that lane. And it's just a, you know, a matter of who's fastest, who's strongest, who's the best at, you know, capturing the value in that lane or doing the best in that lane. Anyone who veers out of that lane is going to acquire knowledge and perspectives from somewhere else that when you come back into your lane, you now have potentially an advantage uh, because you're working with more information and resources than, than others. So I always have this, like, always have a side project going on mentality. And same thing with my employees, like, that's sort of encouraged, like, be working on other stuff. Like, so you're, you know, with an employee now who, he does barbershop quartets, and he has to take time off you know every couple of months to go tour with his quartet, but that's you know someone who no other programmer in our industry is in a barbershop quartet he's acquiring things that i I think are additive so uh so I always had that philosophy, and that's where you know all of these things that that you listed sort of in the the bio some of those come from using. Writing and journalism as an excuse to learn things. So like the ice cream article was, I found this in the early days of Halo Top Ice Cream, if you know that brand, discovered this ice cream that claimed to be low calorie, high protein ice cream. And I did the math that if I ate five pints a day, it's like 1200 calories and I could lose weight. So for GQ, I, yeah, for GQ, I, I ate only ice cream for a couple of weeks and I lost 9.9 pounds. I didn't, I wasn't healthy. Like I studied the nutrition about it, you know, like I did all these interviews with people about that, but it was the excuse of like, hey, I want to learn about nutrition because I did the math. And, uh, and this is also just an excuse to eat only ice cream for a couple of weeks. So I used writing for the magazine. As it's a great that. story. It's a great it story. <laughs> yeah. And I learned things from it. Yeah. But I, uh, that's been the pattern basically is things I want to explore. I find one of two excuses. I'm going to write about it. Or I'm going to plan on this being knowledge that helps me at some point in the future. So, with uh, you know, exploring abandoned buildings, I love architecture, I want to learn about architecture, I love history, I want to learn about history. Climbing up an abandoned, you know, grain factory in Brooklyn is a good excuse to do some research, to do some learning and to have some fun, and then to get to talk about it. And so that's that's basically the prevailing theory that I have. Um, I was saying the
0: shame before we got on here that his website is almost one of the most interesting websites I have ever uh gotten on, one that I didn't actually want to want to leave. It, it which is a unique experience in exploring a website, right? You you're almost like looking for a reason it's oh okay see that. okay I'm gone. You know, but there is so much uh wonderful content here that um that people can enjoy. It's called uh shanesnow.com. Uh but but what makes it interesting i think is a lot of the content that you write on right and and these these open up all these different segments of of exploratory kind of ideas and challenging notions that that one can kind of get into how has it informed your orientation around work you know i mean you mentioned you have employees um innovation and human behavior is one of your topics you have a topic here on uh on teamwork and leadership with an article about the power of intellectual humility. I mean, I feel like we could land and sit on it on any one of these for an hour and talk about it. My orientation is, of course, towards the impact or consequence of character and leadership. Um, I would love for you to just speak into a little bit of your your experience on human behavior, teamwork and business, intellectual humility, and, and it's, its maybe potential cross-parallel you know, connection with character uh, as we define it, you know, in, in the way we look at it when we invest. Any thoughts there? Yeah. Right, that's just a broad assumption everybody has. Oh, of course, right, yeah. No, it's great. But I mean, it sounds like it sounds like these teams need to adopt a no jerk policy. I mean, you know, humility. How, how would you, how would you rake, um, you know, you've looked at a lot of teams, you've looked at a lot of businesses, you've run businesses and so on and so forth. Um, and we often say, well, humility." uh the hard charging CEO, the, constantly it's pushing, 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 pushing in the name of profits, uh this this uh shareholder supremacy notion uh, that that most of the corporate leaders that are Wall Street deal with every single quarter. You know, this justification for for you know winning at all costs in the belief that that, that actually works. You know, in your experience, do you think that really worked? And and I I mean I'm I'm kind of dating you a little bit, but, 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 but a little bit, you know, the kind of the question too, that comes around, uh, you know, is there a new reformation of ideas of how leadership should lead in, in American business, uh, and other areas too, uh, whenever you take away the justification to be a jerk in the name for profits, you know, does the whole system fall apart <laughs> from your opinions? <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things here on the jerk front. Often we are conflating what's making that situation work, right? It's the drive, it's the, you know, risk-taking that pans out because there's plenty of jerks that take risks that don't pan out, right? Um, you know, there's some survivorship bias to, uh, you know, to that pattern. Um, there's a, There's a couple of things there. One is if you are trying too hard to not be a jerk, you can, uh, you can fall into this territory of never making anyone uncomfortable or asking them to do anything hard. And that's not good for a team. You know, a good coach, a terrible coach, a jerk, coaches who are jerks are terrible coaches, I think, because uh, if they're really a jerk, that means they don't care about you and they're not in it for your growth and they're not in it for the journey. A great coach or also terrible coach is a coach that never pushes you. So you want someone who's in it for your journey, who cares about you personally, who's trying to make you grow. And because of that, they're willing to push you where you need it. But they also are trying to keep you safe from getting injured. You know, like a personal trainer would be another example. A personal trainer that never makes you do anything hard, you're going to fire them. Uh, a personal trainer that hurts your back and puts you in the hospital, you're also going to fire them. So there, there's that element there. I think that uh, that often we see these successful jerk leaders and the fact that they're pushing people to do things that, you know, were seeming impossible, they get them to do the impossible, that's the good part. Doing it in a way where you burn people out and they quit and you know, you run through employees over and over again, I think is a selfish and a long term not a sustainable model. Um, but this gets to, I think one of the things that I I had this this big epiphany when I took on this intellectual humility thing in particular, but this uh this idea of, you know virtues and values and principles as a leader and as a person, uh, I got uh, so with intellectual humility and started this, but I got obsessed with the idea of patience as a virtue, uh, which I'll get into in a second. But intellectual humility, I think is, is really interesting because the way it's defined by philosophers is it's not, uh, it's being willing to change your mind and having the discernment and the discretion to know when you shouldn't change your mind. So if you always change your mind, that means you fall into this gullible, uh, indecisive category that is actually not good for growth and probably not good for other people around you. If you never change your mind. You're stubborn and you better be right about everything. Otherwise, you're in trouble. And so, you know, moral virtues are seen as this thing that sits in the middle of two extremes that are bad, where if you can sort of exercise the wisdom to know where you should go along that spectrum, depending on the situation, that's morally good. So patience, I got obsessed with because they say patience, patience is a virtue, but if your friend is about to get eaten by a bear, patience is not a virtue, like run in and help them. Right. So I, a lot of these things like drive, like pushing people as a leader, you know, uh, it's not necessarily bad in all cases. You can go too far, but if you never push people, it's, you know, like, I think bravery is another one, um, standing up for what's right, uh, even at personal reputational risk or whatever at a cost to you, that is, I think, a very important value. Being reckless, is like bravery in the extreme without wisdom. That's not good. You know, that's not noble. If you get yourself killed because your bravery turns into recklessness. But the other side of that, you know, not standing up when it's the right thing to do, not doing the hard things, you know, that is weakness that we don't want in our leaders or our, you know, or any of us in ourselves. So I, I think that's where I think it's easy for pundits to say, "Oh, this type of leader, this type of CEO, this is the pattern." You know, the jerks who drive hard or whatever. I think that's missing the mark. It's it's missing out on what are the the things that actually do help us grow together. And it, a lot of it is that balance, by finding the wisdom of when to employ this tactic or virtue, and rather than using everything as a as a sledgehammer. Yeah,
0: wisdom and discernment matters in almost all those categories.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: I uh, you know, we we, uh, we I ran a, a, an investment strategy that allocated capital on the basis of character in the early 2000s. And one of our inspirations was Jim Collins, level five leaders, and we would look for those yeah. characteristics and leaders. And the portfolio did really well. And then I went off and did other things. And I came back and I discovered this this guy named Fred Keel wrote a book called Return on Character. And um, and he, he 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 essentially proved out that high character CEOs tend to outperform selfish CEOs or self-centered mm. CEOs. But he defined character this way in the in the four pillars. But I think within these four pillars, judgment is a he is kind of over above all of them, and that is you know integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion and and so he lead, you know he he goes into how telling the truth on the integrity side keeping your promises acting consistently with your principles responsibility taking responsibility for personal choices and admitting mistakes and failures forgiveness letting go of one mistakes letting go of other your own mistake focusing on what is right versus what is wrong compassion empathy with others asking for help empowering others actively caring mm-hmm. for others these are the things that we look for in sitting CEOs of it within the public markets. I'd be interested in your perspective on, on that as a, as a, as a, uh, character habits, we, you know, t- to look for what, how does that resonate with your research and your experience in the industry and the way you think about the world?
1: Yeah. Well, I love this because it's, uh, I mean, it, it jives well with the, uh, the intellectual humility thing in particular, right? taking responsibility for your mistakes and failures admitting that that is if you do that in front of people that is displaying intellectual humility doing that internally is uh, is so good for for learning and growth but offering that same thing to other people the forgiveness part is also modeling that intellectual humility is valued so i you know i love that and uh, yeah i mean we've done my team and i and and some collaborators in academia have done uh, quite a bit of study on the elements of intellectual humility. One of the big ones is separating your ego from your ideas. Um, that's one that has a high correlation to, um, you know, to adaptation in business and to, you know, leadership panning out well. Um, so I really like these. What I would say how this, uh, like in my personal vocabulary, these four pillars, uh, to me, I would call them wisdom filters. Because sometimes there's gonna be and what a wisdom filter is is uh, we have all of these principles. You know, some of us have different values, different principles that we care about more than others. If you value something, it's going to cost you something. So if you value integrity, sometimes employing integrity will cost you money because you could have made money if you just were dishonest. You know, that's that's what values are about. But sometimes values come into conflict. So uh, you know, let's say patience and decisiveness. You know, sometimes the, the bears coming to eat your friend, you got to decide which one do you value more, patience or decisiveness. Uh, but I think compassionate forgiveness versus responsibility, those are really interesting because they, you could see some scenarios where those could come into conflict, but actually not really. Like these, I have a hard time finding moral dilemmas between these two. Um, you can say that, uh, that justice and mercy can sometimes have a moral dilemma. You know, do we show mercy on this offender or, uh, or do we seek justice? And that's, you know, these are big philosophical questions and we, we have to do these in business, but when is integrity going to come into conflict with responsibility? You know, when is compassion going to come into conflict with forgiveness? I have a hard time seeing that. So I really like these as, uh, you know, there's others that we will have to grapple with it and, you know, and think about, but when you're making a decision that's hard, you could run it through these filters is this a decision? How do we make this a compassionate decision? How do we make this a decision that, you know, allows us to take responsibility? And, and I would, I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I think you'll be hard pressed to be like, well, we can do compassion, but we can't do responsibility. You can do compassion and maybe not do justice, but you know, that's a trade-off you can make.
0: That's really interesting. That's
1: really interesting. Yeah.
0: I mean, um, I love hearing your your perspective and the way you you break things down. Uh, Wisdom filters. I wrote that that down. Um, Tell me, Shane, about what you're excited about now. Like, what are you thinking about now? What's the next thing for you uh, that you're considering doing, whether it be on the writing side, business side, you know, fun side, building, climbing side? I don't care. Just would love to hear what's the latest with you
1: yeah i ha- i do have some buildings uh scoped out for for some trips <laughs> i'm going on i like to i like to do like abandoned bridges and sewers in particular even though you know it sounds awful and dangerous um underground tunnels are really cool uh i i have a, a couple things scoped out my next so i moved to chicago um for for the new company i to tell you about but uh but i do have uh there's a bridge in new york an old timey bridge it's not really used for car, it isn't used for cars anymore that I want to go climb. Um, But, uh, so right now my full-time endeavor is a company called Showrunner, which is a startup company where we're trying to, well, we're building tools to help uh, film studios run more like smart homes, using technology to help with remote controls and automation and voice activation and uh, using led walls as virtual backgrounds to shoot movies. So it's is a that very like fun. In
0: the Star Wars and Star Wars recently used yes. a similar LED wall. Yeah. Okay. Yep.
1: So it's helping filmmakers use that kind of technology by making it easier so that, you know, a director can do the Star Wars LED thing without having to know, you know, physics engines and all of the crazy tech that went into that with Disney. Um, so we're doing that now, which is an awesome. Uh, it's, yeah, the company's called Showrunner. We raised a bunch of money from VCs where we built out a great team. And I'm getting to practice a lot of the stuff that I, you know, in an elevated way that I learned, you know, in my past companies and my writing about leadership and teamwork, having made a lot of mistakes. Uh, so yeah, that's the full-time thing. And, uh, and it's awesome because we're trying to rethink the process of making a movie, making a TV commercial from this sort of first principle standpoint with the technology that's available now, what can we tie together uh, that can make people's jobs easier, make it so that crews don't have to, you know, work 13 hour days and never see their families when they're shooting a movie. Um, So that's, that's a big one. And the sort of the side thing that I always have going is uh, we're using our technology to film uh, some stuff ourselves. We're working on a television pilot. Uh, We're planning out a film where, you know, it's sort of, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, eating your own dog food a little bit. But, you know, my nights and weekends have been working on, uh, you know, telling stories on the screen using our tools, but we're, you know, we're hiring right right now, we're in the middle of hiring, you know, 50 people to work on this television pilot. And, uh, and in that case, we're telling the story of um, freelance workers in the great resignation, uh, kind of in a, a comedic way, but helping people understand. What is it that the Uber driver and the TaskRabbit, you know, and the Postmates, you know, worker is going through to manage their life and career in this crazy world where, you know, we expect this all on demand. So that is, uh, that is a fun project, but actually to sort of what I, you know, talked about in the beginning, this is not something out of nowhere, you know, I've spent my whole career as a writer and a storyteller, um, but my company from, you know, it's, it's now uh, 13 years ago that I started was helping freelancers get work so i spent years understanding the plight of freelancers and you know getting compassion and empathy for this class of people that increasingly you know upholds our economy but often doesn't have health insurance and you know has clients who pay them very late and and all of that so this you know telling that story of this thing that i spent a lot of time in um using that to uh you know to make that story good and then using our tools to and make that story uh, something that we can, you know, tell more efficiently. We can, you know, film it in a couple of weeks instead of a couple of months, and um, give some people some jobs in the meantime. But yeah, that's what's going on right now. Sounds like a lot, and it is. And I'm stressed out just saying that all out at once. <laughs> but, uh, but it is fun. Uh, what about what about writing? Um, do you
0: have any? Uh, you remind me of the way you go after intellectual questions or problems. You remind me of my my dear friend Tom Rakes, who uh founded a company called Sunbum, a Suntan Lotion Company, but he would go like walk the aisles of Walmarts and 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 see, look for categories that like there was no branding. And it was just like like it was it was like you said, like uh, uh newspapers were created this way in the 1800s for some silly reason and it still represented itself, you know, today and uh but I love how you go about that from an electoral standpoint and challenging uh traditional notions in today with the new new data and coming at it with the new approach. Do you have any new ideas of of things you might want to explore in the future
1: i I've been there's a couple of things that have been brewing um you know on the and kind of like the human behavior side. I've been thinking a lot over the years about power dynamics and the different types of power dynamics. And we talk a lot about power in society. I think a lot of the things going on in culture wars and politics are, you know, they are about power. We recognize that. But that in micro and our relationships and, you know, companies, you know, a lot of the problems we have are about power dynamics. And um, there's a lot of great research that's been done, you know, on that, you know, 48 Laws of Power is still on the bestseller list. But i that's one where I, I think when I have some time to have take a breath and do a deep dive, that's a topic I'm very interested in in taking apart with current body of knowledge of psychology and, and sociology. Um, the, but really, though, uh, I mean, yeah, writing-wise, right now I'm, I'm producing stuff that I have written, but my wife and I during the pandemic, we took, like, there's a, a whole left turn, but uh, we kind of had a bored month uh, while we were waiting to see how work was gonna go with the pandemic and we outlined a uh, a middle grade novel, a fiction novel about two kids going on an adventure through space, kind of like a wrinkle in time of, sort of, course of genre. You did. Of course you did. Yeah. And uh <laughs> yeah, we we finally finished that after two years of, of working on it very slowly. <laughs> and uh and that's out to publishers now. So if any publishers are listening to this, uh you know, look for look for a pitch from Levine Greenberg. Uh that's our agency. But um Yeah, that, uh, that has been really fun and we'll see where that goes, but that would be, you know, we'll write another one of those if we get it published, uh, learned a lot in that process of what it's like to write for 10 to 12 year olds and fiction is very different than, you know, spending decades writing nonfiction and, you know, for adults. And I, I think that that itself has been very worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Well, at your heart, it seems, Shane, you are a creative. I mean, it it comes out in so many different ways, whether it be business, writing, um, or even just speaking. I mean, uh, and the things you've done. Okay, I got one last question for you. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to respect your time. If you were to share one of your more character-defining moments of your life, what would it be?
1: I had this time period where I, and I've written about this to some extent, um, I mean, I haven't written about some of the darker parts of this, but I I got married very young and then uh, a few years later got divorced and you know, the way it was handled, a lot of it was on me, but I ended up in a situation where I had, uh, very little money and not enough money to afford an apartment, uh, in New York city where I lived. And instead of asking for help, I spent several weeks. Pretending like everything was fine because I was embarrassed and not wanting to ask for help and wanting to see if I could scrounge up enough. You know, I had a job, like I was running a business, but no one knew that I was homeless. And so for a few weeks, I kind of bounced around. People knew, you know, something was up, but I didn't really let out what was going on. And then to a couple of dear friends, uh, including one of my business partners and his wife, who were amazing um you know i let them in on what happened and they're like you've been homeless for three weeks like what are you doing stay with us uh but during that time period i you know one in hindsight like i learned that people are there for you when you need help even if you feel humiliated like no one really cared about the embarrassment factor they're like you're going through this hard thing and it happens people get divorced like why are you pretending like everything's fine um i also had a mentor who really helped me out during that time and he's passed away now but that him helping me through that was like a really defining moment. I wrote about that actually in the epilogue of dream teams, but I will say that during that period, I uh, frankly had a drinking problem and uh, you know, I, I realized that I was coping with, you know, my internal whatever by doing something that I had never done before, which was starve myself and drinking to excess and like being really dishonest with myself and with others. And I was just like, I, I really sort of went into this spiral of self-destructive behavior and, um, you know, it took other, like opening up to other people and letting them help me, um, to get out of that. And I think, thank, gratefully, I don't have an addictive personality because I was like, I really, you know, went to some bad places there. Um, but, uh, but no, I was, I was punishing my body and, uh, you know, and being irresponsible and not being a good role model um, and coming out the other side of that, I think just from a character defining standpoint, the you know, having going through something where you realize you need to be a more honest person with others, I think it's a very valuable thing to learn. Um, and I wish I had, you know, I hadn't had that chance really to to get there earlier in my life because things had either gone well or, you know, I integrity is a big part of who I was. So having this time period where I've just dropped all of that, like I learned what is really like how I don't want to do that. But I think the dishonesty with myself, like the self-deception of, uh, you know, the problems that I was putting on myself while I was experiencing real problems that were, you know, somewhat external, um, I was creating more problems for myself because I was being dishonest with myself. And Understanding that, like realizing that, and spending a lot of time journaling and you know therapy and uh, you know opening up to other people helping me helped me sort out a lot of that. And that's where I, yeah, the a lot of the you know the virtues and values work in business that I've done sort of came out of that exploration, self exploration of what does true personal integrity mean. You know, no one knows if, uh, if I text you, we're supposed to meet up and I text you, I'm around the corner and I'm three blocks away. You'll never know. But I know that I just made a little, you know, I was being deceptive that it maybe won't matter in the long run, but a habit of doing that sort of thing, uh, especially when you're in weak or when you're compromised can very easily turn into, you know, a much bigger problem. And so I, I committed to, you know, at that period of time, I committed to being more honest even when no one would know. And that, I think, has made a huge difference in my life. Um, Yeah. So anyway, I hope that's not too much of an overshare. But
0: no, I love it because uh, it's so honest. And and frankly, for any of us that I put myself in this category in a time of failure and difficulty, um, you know, that's where you have to really look internally. And uh, ultimately, it's amazing how it shapes your trajectory going forward. Yeah. I really appreciate you you sharing that. Uh, I I'm looking at the time. I want to respect it. I I think I could sneak in one more question. You're an it. avid entrepreneur. You know, um, talk talk about or just speak into advice around the psychology of hope whenever you're fighting the fight to to make something. You know, successful, and the reality is that it's hard. Like it's really, really hard. Uh, uh, whether you're a salesperson selling within an organization, you've got quotas you got to meet, or an entrepreneur that you're trying to get your ideas out, how do you manage? Or any advice for for those of us that are in this world um, to keep going? You know, every day, uh, despite maybe the data saying, "Man, you get, you're not doing good."
1: The there's a, something I wrote about recently, fairly recently based on some really good research. I'm blanking on the, on the researcher's name. I'm sorry. Um, but it's about the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism is really in the, in this definition, it's when odds are good that something will work out how you want them to, okay. you know, it's not a sure deal, but odds are good. You should make a bet on it. That's being optimistic. Hope is when the odds are not good, but there is a chance. And hope I think is really important because if there is a chance, but the odds are not good, then you have to be creative about how you approach that. You have to work hard. You have to use lateral thinking. You have to rethink things. And it it almost forces you when you're in that sort of situation, it forces you to do things differently, which are precisely what can help you to break through and overcome the odds is approaching things differently. When you're optimistic, you can kind of do the expected course and have a good shot. When you have hope, but it's slim, you have to do things differently. And I think that's a pattern that's when you see- I love that. Yeah, you see entrepreneurs and explorers that do succeed. Hope is what drives them. And I'll say one uh, leave behind that anyone who's a reader who's listening to this uh, should check out if you're fascinated by that idea. There's this book called The Hypomanic Edge. Hypomanic. Uh, by this Dr. John Gartner, who's a psychologist in New York. I love this book because he looks at explorers and entrepreneurs through history who are slightly manic and believe they can beat the odds. And so they do these things that no one else is willing to do. Uh, and then they do beat the odds. And of course, the the danger is if you overextend yourself, you take risks that you shouldn't, you know, there's those don't work out. But there's something about Going after something where the odds are stacked against you that forces you to do what it takes. That's really interesting. And that book is very fun and makes a good psychological case for the mentality that helps entrepreneurs succeed when they can put themselves in that situation. I love that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything else that uh, you would like to make sure is out there that we can help uh, make people aware of other than me just kind of giving you a plug and telling everybody go to? Go go to the shainsnow.com website. Uh, it is worth your time. Oh, thank you. And you'll be better for having visited. And there I don't think I've known one website that I could say that for. So genuinely <laughs> so I, I really encourage people to check it out. It's really, it's really it's really great.
1: Any any anything else you'd like to add before we, we bow out? I think on the character front, um, there's a page you can find on the website or you can just type in shainsnowcom slash values. I have this long essay on values where uh, it's very long, but if anyone is really interested in the character stuff and wants to dig into that, I love hearing alternate perspectives on that topic in particular. So hit me up on the contact page if you have something that I can learn from there. But uh, but that's where I talk about the wisdom filters and a lot of that on that page, if anyone wants to dig into that.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us. I really appreciate you and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank okay. you, Dan.
1: It's it's so encouraging to, to hear this uh, from you. And uh, yeah, I, I love to share it. So I appreciate you letting me have this platform to do so.
0: It's been awesome.